0: hello everyone welcome to another episode of what do you call it podcast i'm your host gb today's guest is a passionate wrestling fan and the author of the upcoming book dynamite and davy the explosive life of the british bulldogs please give it up for stephen bell how are you doing today mate you all right
1: i'm great George. thanks for having me man
0: not a problem at all mate uh, i'm glad that you got in touch and communicated We uh, was actually supposed to do this a bit but earlier but know things come up uh so but thank you for um coming on we're going to talk about your book your upcoming book you being an author and just how you became a wrestling fan so before we do discuss the upcoming book how long have you actually been a wrestling fan
1: well it's um it's been a bit of a on and off thing really throughout my life i was um sort of mid 30s so um if you trace that back, you'll—it's not hard to figure out that all sort of prime childhood years when Vince McMahon sort of targeted that that era, especially here in the UK, largely through Davey, using Davey as the um, sort of face of uh, of his British onslaught and takeover of um, of the British wrestling business, if you like, after he'd conquered the US. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up me and my friends and my brother knowing nothing but you know all Hogan and Davey and brett and you know that sort of era ultimate mm. warrior
0: the golden uh, the golden era like. yeah
1: yeah they got the, the golden era the uh the, the time when it really sort of piped it into that that generation if you like and uh mm-hmm. yeah absolutely upline and sinker loved it loved every single second of it um and then as I think happened, the um, the WWF in particular went through a tough period as WCW sort of took over a yeah. little bit in the 90s. And that coincided with um, my generation sort of growing out of wrestling a little bit, you know, thinking that we were a little bit too smart for it then. And, you know, uh, finding other things. I got really still, I'm really big on my football, my boxing, but I got into that sort of stuff then. And then obviously a few years later, uh, the Attitude Era came along and I was a teenage boy then, and what else does a teenage boy want other than, you know, Stone Cold and The Rock and Trish Stratus. So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so it sort of really piqued me fandom. Then me and my brother got back into it in a big way, I remember. And um, one of his friends had never actually made the mistake of thinking he was too cool for wrestling in that mid period. And mm-hmm. uh, he'd, he'd actually... Carried on his fandom the whole way through, so so he'd uh, he'd curated a, a big collection of all the old VHSs, all the pay per views, going all the way back to WrestleMania one. So when uh, when myself and my brother got back into wrestling in a big way, we sort of wanted to catch up on everything that we'd missed and more. We wanted to go all the way back, so uh, we we're bringing sort of, as the carrier bags back. I remember of all his VHSs uh, at a time. 10 or ah, Silver Vision, man and working his way through it. I remember every night when we got off from school, we'd work through a couple of pay-per-views. Yeah. And, um, and that's when actually I sort of tied, um, started to tie in uh, Dynamite into what I knew about Davy. And um, obviously by then I was sort of a 15, 16 year old, a bit more socially aware, geographically aware. I'd become aware that Davey Boy was actually from just up the road from me, uh, less than, far less than an hour's drive uh from a similar sort of small mining town as what i'm from so then when uh when i discovered the british bulldogs rather than just the british bulldog singular as i'd only known sort of in my childhood mm-hmm. um i sort of asked to start asking myself a few questions did a bit of research into exactly tom billet and what, and um yeah that sort of coincided with mick foley's book coming out mick foley uh, you know dynamite some on Mick Foley's Mount Rushmore and, uh, it puts him over in his book mm. in a big way as being sort of probably the best in the world in the mid eighties, uh, when, when he first came across him. And, and so that sort of piqued me interest even more, started doing a little bit of research. Then I was nowhere close to being an author back then. It was just really sort of a passion of mine to sort of dig into these stories. And, and so, yeah, that that's like 20 year ago now. And then slowly as, um, As as time went on, me and my brother stayed big big wrestling fans, it was like something that we used not just as interest for ourselves individually, but something that we really had in common. The main thing that we really had in common, it it forged us to be closer in as later years after we'd not been that close as kids really. So yeah, it was something that we had and still do have uh, in common in a big way. Uh, And... Yeah, so then it went into two thousands. Davy unfortunately passed away. I and mean, you know, yeah. it's like one of them a bit like the mention with, you know, uh I think the two main ones that spring to mind is Princess Diana or Freddie Mercury, where you remember where you were when you were the, the news, and I do remember exactly mm. where I was when I that uh, David Boyd died. Really? you
0: was so young, I suppose, only you what thirty yeah, nine?
1: Thirty-nine, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Um yeah, it shook me up quite a lot, really, because um I'd only ever sort of seen him as this ultra fit superhero type figure. So then that forced me to sort of do a little bit more research into, you know, why. And then sort of I, I became aware of all the other wrestler deaths that were happening around the same time with similar yeah. issues and things like that. So, yeah, I, I just sort of accidentally stumbled across this, this minefield of a story that, well, that I felt had originated from just round the corner from me. Yeah, it it, it was happening on a global scale right in front of me. It, it involved so much of my peak fandom, my wrestling fandom, going back to when I was a child and also at the time then. And then, yeah, so sort of 15 to 20 years later, when I became a sports author, it was mm-hmm. sort of there in the back of my mind all the time that that I knew that there was a story in there. And in the meantime, Brett, Hart had bought brought his book out, which is actually one of my sort of top five favourite It's books my,
0: my favourite wrestling book, by the way. Yeah, it's uh, my favorite it's, wrestling. I've probably read it like two or three times. I actually met him when he just released it at a book sign even though it's four hours late. Um, but the <laughs> book is <laughs> so good, except for the last two pages. I won't spoil it if anyone's not read it, but when you read, if you've read it, you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that is true, but it's it, that's just so Brett, isn't it? You know, Yeah,
0: it, just he couldn't help it, himself.
1: You could tell he <laughs> poured his heart and soul into the whole thing, and um, left left absolutely nothing out there. Like you know, it's five or six hundred pages long, mm-hmm. um, where where most of these wrestling memoirs are two, you
0: know, three hundred pages. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah, it, but it took me less time to read Brett's than it did one of the two or three hundred page ones because I was just so absorbed into it. Every single, I found myself you know, even while I was just putting kettle on in the morning to make myself look up before I i to work, I'd, yeah. I'd run I'd I'd two or three pages on because, yeah, literally, you know, the old saying of you can't put a book down, I yep. actually found I couldn't put that book down. And that put so much sort of meat on the bones of the yeah. uh, Dynamite of Davis story for me um, that, uh, yeah, I found myself doing more of my own research and everything like that point. And again, that's still just sort of leading up to me being in a position where, I found myself a few years later being uh, a successful and published author, sports author, um, and nobody had sort of done it yet. And I just thought, right, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's time somebody did it. And unbelievably, it's me.
0: I am looking forward to pre-ordering it and when it comes out. But there's a lot to talk about in your journey and some things that I want to sort of go back on. Um, as you mentioned before, uh, wrestling not being your only sport, that you're actually into football and boxing. I've got to ask, because if you have listened to my previous episodes, if I discover someone's a football fan, I've just gotta know what team do you support?
1: I'm a United fan. Um, yeah, that war uh, born out of a little bit like um obviously you can tell I've got a northern northern voice, <laughs> but uh, I uh in that early 90s period at the same time that I was sort of Obsessed with WOF and what they were all bringing to the bringing to the table, or mm-hmm. got a little bit obsessed with what Alex Ferguson and Eric Cantona and Ryan Giggs and Kamchelskis and all of them were bringing yep. to the table. So yeah, I quickly aligned myself uh, there. It weren't it weren't difficult a difficult decision to make, you know. There were, there were no major um, no major football club within ten or fifteen mile of me, so there were no sort of immediate of uh, obvious allegiances, and when there were sort of the Alem Globe trolls at the time, it were um, a pretty easy de- decision to make. Bonafide, bonafide glorious sport, I'm afraid.
0: Now, at least you're honest about it. I mean, have you at least been to Old Trafford?
1: Oh, God, yeah, many times, many times, yeah.
0: Defining, because I know there's so many United fans I know in the South that have never even stepped foot in Manchester, yet alone Old Trafford. So... Not a problem at all. I completely understand. I'm an Arsenal fan, but I've always got a soft spot for United. More United's past achievements and the rivalry that was between Arsenal and Man United, Arsene benga and Alex Ferguson. Like we're never going to see those days again. We're playing well, each other.
1: Well, on it's Thursday. funny to say that, George, because I yep. genuinely believe, and I've spoke about this quite a lot. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I write and go on podcasts for uh, these football times, and um, it's something that I've talked about quite passionately. Passionately that. I don't think football will ever be the same again. And I think that that rivalry were kind of where f- football peaked. I know everybody sort of thinks that their era were the best, but I do. I think it's where we had we had this perfect combination of um, foreign talent coming in, the best foreign talent coming in. From your own point of view, you've got Bert Camp and Henry and them yeah, the era team. But they
0: weren't playing for themselves; they were playing for the team. They weren't playing yeah, for the wages. They,
1: they, they weren't mercenaries like like we have now, and, and um. Same at United, fantastic, fantastic foreign imports. So mm-hmm. uh, Alex Ferguson were bringing in to fill particular points in, a, in his team and building his team around them. Uh, you like you Cantona like and Van Nistel and Ronaldo eventually. And um, yeah, I, I do think that that era, I do think that Roman Abramovich and then Mourinho coming in at Chelsea was the, almost the beginning of the end of English football for me because it just... That is when it ultimately just turned into a, a, a game of monopoly rather than rather than a game of football. I think.
0: No, I, I understand that, and I, I do. I don't want to like piss with some of the listeners because I think some people won't agree, but that's because they're probably younger. But I do agree with you, like football has peaked and maybe because we're getting old. I don't know. Like you said, everyone's got their favourite periods of time or whatever. But I honestly agree. Like, just tell me, have you seen the same passion that was seen in the Arsenal and Man United games from 15, 16 years ago? I'm sorry, that's not been replicated.
1: At all. Not, not, not even close. Not, no. not, not even close. You, you are glued. You are glued to every single second of them games because you never know what were going to happen next. What bit of magic footballing magic might come up? What bit of, um, you know, sliding tackle and then some retribution further mm-hmm. like, out? You just never. Yeah, know I mean, screaming
0: in the face like Vanischway, no, yeah, hitting no, the, the crossbar feels
1: like they're going through emotions a little mm-hmm. bit now. As, as and
0: then Vieira, like, and, and the things that they yeah. respect each so now, like, I think you can watch them talking about like they're like. The moments and the memories
1: on youtube and it's just brilliant man it's just that passion yeah absolutely like and i think as a fan you when you see players just going through motion mm-hmm. a bit, same as with wrestling i think it's same with wrestling you know um when you see them just going through the motions you yourself sort of switch off and you you, you gain that mentality off them but it's not you're not quite fully engaged because you don't feel like they're fully engaged if you know what i mean but mm-hmm. But yeah, as you say, it's uh, each of their own, and I think there's probably is a little bit of nostalgia and roasting yeah. and all that going on. I, I have no doubt about that. Like I say, well, I was still a, sort of a teenager or the early twenties at the time when yeah. all that was going on, and um, yeah, it, it just feels like looking back that that was the peak of my sort of football fandom and football obsession. While uh, while that period.
0: I still love the game, but I, I do think you're right. Uh, there is one thing I want to know as well. Just before I talk about how you became an author and a writer, because I know you've touched on that briefly, um, I actually want to just quickly ask. It's probably going to be an obvious answer, but I got to know what is your favourite British Bulldog match and and what is your favourite British Bulldogs match?
1: Right. Okay. The um, favourite British Bulldog match. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you. Two, just because I feel like you probably want a singles one where you're saying that as in a singles, um, and that is I would say it's him versus Brett, but not SummerSlam 92 in uh, your house, December in your house, December 95. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's everybody remembers SummerSlam 92 for various reasons. It's a wonderful, magical, amazing match, but it's a it's m- even more of a wonderful, magical, amazing spectacle. Mm-hmm. um in terms of a purely wrestling match uh in terms of you've got a baby mm-hmm. face you've got a heel you've got uh, the 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 role. 80 000
0: people there Wembley Stadium
1: Wembley Stadium yeah yeah that's that's absolutely mm. right that sort of even though the matches were amazing dying a heart crying <laughs> it, it, yeah the um the spectacle almost gives you a, a an emotional investment yeah uh, that, that brings the match up above what it actually was even though it was fantastic the, the In Your House match that they had in December 95 uh, with the WF title on the line, um, they they deliberately, you can tell, and from doing all my research that I've done and knowing exactly where they were in their friendship, uh, family life, uh, determination to to be at the top and stay at the top, Yeah, uh, at, at that time, um, Blading War completely embargoed so they the sort of did it um and they did the best job of ever covering up blading. If you're looking that, because they know they had to, because it was so embargoed on such a high level, but they know they want to roll back the years to when blading was so... Brett was
0: one of the best at that. Like, we did it oh, against absolutely. Piper. He had, he, had the,
1: he had the perfect hairdo, especially when it was mm. wet, you know, to, to sort of give himself that opportunity. Never but, got caught. Uh, no, and but because they... Had, some fantastic matches back in Stampede when that's what they used to do, and uh, their matches were like sort of barbaric and brilliant, and they really knew how to time the uh, the blading job, and they knew how to really get the crowd going to fever pitch. And once I'd done all that research, and then I watched that match. I'd seen it two or three times before. Don't get me wrong, but when you watch that match, then knowing what they're doing, why they're doing it, um, uh, yeah, it is. It's a work. It's an absolute work of art. Is that match? Um, david boy rarely as an eel throughout his career uh, does a great job it gives him a better job than in 92 of sort of being the foil mm. for for brett who was the main man at the time uh, and but but what another thing that i love on david's part is both him and brett agree that there's no need for him to submit to chapshaw we never submitted to chapshaw like everybody else did um and he walks off, despite being a heel, he walks off with the kind of a babyface reaction walking off with Diana. Um, you can tell that even though he was an heel at the time, the crowd still love him, everybody still loves him. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, it's a perfect uh, sort of little emotional story that they tell that day. The other one, the reason I'm going to put this one in is it, it's my favourite match that I think I was ever involved with, but obviously it's sort of a 10-man tag, so I didn't want to put it in as my favourite.
0: Ah, uh, Canadian Stampede
1: absolutely that is the the ultimate air on the back of the head like uh, that is
0: literally top five pay-per-views of all time for me by the way
1: i think it's got to be i think uh, yeah at the very least um and purely just because of that match the reactions the timing of it the emotional involvement it is the perfect piece of wrestling storytelling Mm. for me that culminates in probably culminates arguably you could say I mean as, as brilliant as the match is and what happens at the match and the ending and it's all it's all great. That story between the art foundation and the eel turn and them coming together um the you other know, all the infighting but they brought them together everybody wanted to see them together but they probably wanted to see them together as baby faces. But that the fact that they were together as eels didn't matter in Canada. They nope. just love the fact that they were together. The fans
0: were erupting, um, literally. Oh, root, it was shaking it, the camera.
1: It, yeah, it is. A, and it, as it's building up, you get um, Pullman comes out first, really, really, as kind of only he's capable of doing, really yeah. brings the crowd up to fever pitch. And then it's uh, Jim Nidak gets the biggest reaction he probably ever has in his life, because he, uh, he didn't walk out as a solo star much, to so bring out, him out on his own. Gets this amazing reaction. Then it's... Uh, and then it's Bulldog gets one of the best reactions of his life. He comes out and he's got uh, at least one. He's probably got two belts at the time. I'm trying to think back. He's got Diana. Oh, European tag. tag, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and then Owen comes out with his slammers and stuff like that. You can just feel the electricity. And then when Brett, the guitar riffs from Brett's music, it. I think it is the, I mean, I've been to sporting events all over the world, the biggest sporting events all over the world. I weren't there, obviously. I weren't there. But um, yeah. as feeling it, through sort of osmosis, through TV, I think that is possibly the most electrified sports crowd that there's quite possibly ever been. Like it is, it, the the place is shaking, literally shaking. And uh, yeah, um, that will always be sort of my favourite. I think my favourite match that involves Davy, I think that will always be that.
0: That's a good answer because I don't necessarily hear that all the time. It is mostly Wembley 92 is the most popular answer you hear.
1: Yeah, and, and I can see why, because mm-hmm. of the, the it's the spectacle as well, the oncoming, yeah. uh the the brilliant storytelling in that with as you say with Diana and the fact that they've got this infighting both baby faces, the intercontinental title. tile. And yeah, it, it is it is a perfect story. I just think yeah. it's um I think the fact that both baby faces obviously limits what they can do uh, in terms of your underhand tactics and all that, which everybody likes to see throughout a, a wrestling match, and you know, it's, it's part of the story building. Um, so yeah, I, I, ju- I just think that as a singles match, uh, for me, the In Your House just slightly pips that one, uh, yeah, and then the Canadian Stampede just purely for the um, the unique, uh, it'll, like even, even the emotional investment everybody had at SummerSlam 92, um, you can. S- Probably pick out other singles matches with other people that have had that level of, you know, you sort of Rock and Austin matches and that, that, the, these one-on-one matches that have had that level of anticipation and crowd um, support. But the the in your house Canadian Stampede, I, I don't think there has ever been for me. I've never seen a wrestling match with that level of just pure emotion and pure investment from a crowd and uh, that will like always
0: the be entire crowd as well it'll be hard to to find anything that tops it i mean if there's anyone listening to this right now and you haven't seen this pay-per-view if to forget the match itself just the entire pay-per-view go to the network find it on there canadian stampede in your house 1997 it is fantastic honestly it's one of the best pay-per-views you ever see
1: uh, absolutely, it feels like an. Um, I think during the, sh- the during the show as well, uh, it's almost like a mini WrestleMania, like a Calgary WrestleMania, where the mm-hmm. show, um, all the old art family, and obviously David Bowie being heavily involved in that. Uh, the show I'm doing this sort of uh, tour along with the uh, the Calgary Stampede that's actually on at the time, uh, the rodeo that the pay per view was named after. That's yeah. all at the time, and it shows. Uh, there's like. I'm picking a number out of thin air, but it's probably not far off being right from my research, as I remember. It, like, 100,000 fans snaking around the city uh, just to get a glimpse of them, to get all, uh, autographed 8 That's by awesome. tens, things like that. Uh, and they all got one that stayed there until midnight or whatever to to make sure everybody got away with the... the, sign the actual rock pass. stars. And, yeah, it's just... It turns into this sort of mini-Canadian WrestleMania that culminates in this one match, where mm. the rest of the... Certainly to the US fans, the Art Foundation eels, but it's this unique situation that they managed to create through all this storytelling and performances of the guys individually, um, where you, you had this red hot baby face heat behind them in Canada and this red hot baby face, uh, red hot eel hatred for them in the US. And it, it just culminates on that night, and it, it, it is amazing.
0: Oh, it's fantastic, mate. I mean, one one last thing to mention before we move on uh, from the best match category and talk. Uh, there is one match I think doesn't get necessarily talked about enough. British Bulldog, Owen Hart, European title.
1: Ha! Absolutely. I cover it heavily in the book. I only, I, I, with the other matches that we mentioned, I, I knew even before I started my research for a book, I knew, I knew them matches all quite well. Or I, I remembered them. Um, I knew that David Boy had won the European title at a tournament in Europe, and I knew that he'd um, beat Owen in the final. That role, all I knew. I'd never actually seen the match, um, so obviously I had a point of point of going and viewing it when I got mm-hmm. to that part of the story. What an amazing little match it is! It's like you can brilliant. see, that made this decision to have this ultra technical um, match in Europe where they blend all these styles together, um, probably wouldn't have been given the time or the space to do it on uh, American TV or American pay They've obviously just been given the freedom to go and do what they want and they create this almost like perfect technical wrestling match where it also involves the storytelling of them as um, brothers-in-law and tag team champions together who were sort of a little bit of a jealousy uh, brother mentality going on. And yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I would, as, we, as you've just said for that last one, I would implore anybody who wants not seen it to go and watch mm-hmm.
0: it. Highly recommend that match. So I want to talk about you being an author. I actually want to discover, when did you know that you wanted to become an author and a writer?
1: Well, it's been something that goes back an awful long way with me. I mean, I know as a teenager, I was great at all English, got A stars in English at school. And I went into engineering as my um, career, never really gave anything like journalism or anything a real chance to embed itself in me. And then as years went on, um, I sort of regretted that, I found myself being so obsessed with sports, uh, mm-hmm. still know that I've got this storytelling and writing ability um, that I kind of thought I'd miss my calling in life and sports journalism is probably what I should have done. Uh, and that went on years and years and don't get me wrong, engineering served me well, it's given me a good, um, a good grounding, a good standard of living. But um, I still had this sort of feeling that I'd, I'd, I'd missed my calling in life a little bit and in 2014, I went to Brazil for for six weeks for the World Cup and um, England were only there for two weeks, but I was there for six, <laughs> and uh, I, I fell in love with Brazil, fell in love with Brazilian football, fell in love with the people, and um, I came home and a couple of years later, I don't know if um, you know much about it, but the Brazilian football team, Chapa Coenze, had a terrible plane crash where most of the team died.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's it, it sort of appeared
1: on It like, appeared on our media for literally a few days and they completely disappeared off it, but because I'd got... Uh, one friend in particular who are in regular contact with in Brazil I, I got a little bit upped on the story and um I was asking him to send me his own Brazilian media stuff you know and he was translating me stuff and sending me uh YouTube news feeds with he he were putting English subtitles on me for him bless him and so over a few months I accidentally sort of became this accidentally became a little bit of a English-speaking expert on the subject, I think, and I I will really sort of um, digging deep on it and find out more and more, but not just about the accident and the crash, but the backstory that this team, the 10 years earlier, they were effectively the Brazilian version of non-league and they'd gone on this amazing, mind-boggling run of promotions and uh, scraping through every single division and... um, Playoffs and avoiding relegations and then scraping promotion the following year, this real underdog story. And a lot of them same players had been playing in non-league. It weren't like they were um, spending a lot of money and refreshing the roster every single season. Mm. There were a lot of the players, what same players who had been in non-league and stayed with them all the way through. And then they'd qualified for the South American version of the Europa League final, like just unbelievably, like the, the, one of the craziest underdog stories in history of sport. Mm-hmm. And on the on the way to um, the away leg, they have their finals in a home and away leg. Uh, on the away on the on the way to the away first leg, um, yeah, the plane crashed for truly truly criminal reasons. Like it literally ran out of fuel because the the, the airline were cutting corners and. Um yeah, I got so hooked on that story that um, I thought, well, I'm going to pull all this together, this sort of, bit of burning desire that I'd got to do some sports writing at some point in my life. And um, this story that I've managed to end up being this sort of accidentally be this expert on, I thought I'll pull this together and write a book about it, not really knowing where I was going to go with it and got halfway through. And decided to send what I'd done so far into Pitch Publishing, who were the UK's biggest sports book publisher. And um, yeah, they loved it. And they said they'd do it. And it did really well. It was really well received. Um, that led to me sort of writing, as I said, for These Football Times and appearing on podcasts for them. And then um, at that point, the wrestling fandom was sort of a little bit down again. I weren't really into wrestling yeah, on a on a weekly basis or anything like that at that point. But I discovered this story. I'm from, I live in Uddersfield now, and uh, one of Uddersfield's greatest sons is a, a gentleman called Douglas Clark. Um, He was a pioneer of rugby league. He was one of the first true rugby league superstars uh, for Great Britain and England. And Uddersfield won everything they were to win before he was in his sort of mid twenties. And then World War One, it, it went. He went off to World War One. and was a bona fide uh, war hero. Um, came back with every medal under the sun, and um, he well, do not If you've seen the film Axor Ridge, but it was like Britain's version of Axor Ridge. You just kept running back into the line of fire to, to That's rescue. That's a great Britain. film, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, literally, when I read, I've read his war diaries. Went to Imperial War Museum I read Douglas Douglas Clark's war diaries, and it literally reads like he was doing what. Axel, Ridge we doing, he would just running back in because he'd got this level of strength and fitness from his rugby life. Um, he would just running back into uh, into no man's land and back into um, enemy lines to to save his friends and drag them back out. And he talks about some of them that he didn't manage to save, and yeah, it's, it's truly, truly harrowing. And then after that, he gets um, he got given a twenty percent disability certificate and told that he could never do anything. Uh, too strenuous again but that was uh, he found himself bored so he decided he thought he was fit enough to go back to rugby he signed back on with field had a sort of second hall of fame rugby career played, <laughs> for England, played for England all over again played for Great Britain Lions all over again won everything all over again and when he finally hung up his um hung up his rugby boots he went into pro wrestling and well in 1930 when pro wrestling had just truly it British Shores. He went to pro wrestling and was Britain's first ever world heavyweight champion. So that sort of piqued me interested in pro wrestling, um, doing loads of research, reading loads of biographies from around that time. And, um, and yes, yeah, so I, I did, I did his, uh, biography at this point, I started to realize, wow, I'm actually a published author and I've still got the bulldog story sort of swirling around in my mind from mm-hmm. all my fandom and all my interest in it going back years and years. And, um, I sort of still didn't feel like I was qualified as sort of the man to do it. But then um, on Remembrance Day last year, uh, loads of the the Douglas Clark book had done so well that a lot of the national press ran with it It as a front page story, as the Remembrance Day war hero story. They ran with
0: extracts
1: out of my book and... Uh, that made the book kick on and do really well and it got so fantastically well received and I got loads of brilliant feedback that it sort of made me realise that yeah uh, I probably am now qualified to and I certainly felt like i would got the passion and the energy to to pour everything into the Bulldogs book so yeah I made that decision there and then uh, to sort of really crack on with it and so sort of 13 months down the line now it's uh it's off with me, me, 500-page manuscript is off with Pitch Publishing getting edited now, yeah.
0: Oh, awesome. As you have told us how you began the journey, but can you just talk us through it? So the, the book itself, Dynamite and Davy: The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. So in terms of who have you contacted in terms of getting some insight on both their careers and their backgrounds and information so i just want to hear some of your research and the process that has gone into this book
1: yeah well um it will it's happened so organically it's it's ended up being bigger and better like i said i didn't anticipate right in a 500 word 500 page epic <laughs> uh, at the start it was just going to be because um being from a small mining town in the north of England just like down and davy were. Mm-hmm. i wanted the, the the stories individually the, the stories never really been told collectively of dynamite and david both of the stories have been told in bits and parts and pieces of them individually but um the true relationship as cousins from a small mining town and the background that i knew that had a heritage that i felt like i sort of shared with them yeah uh, i wanted to make sure i brought it from that perspective um because I feel like they're possibly a bit misunderstood, especially with a lot of the controversies that happened, especially for Dynamite. You know, yeah, I think what
0: which can be seen did, on like uh, the Dark Side of the Ring.
1: Yeah,
0: which, yeah. I, I feel they kind of balanced it, but yeah, yeah I, they, you I, mean, think
1: did, I think they did the best to balance it, but I mean, at the, end of the day the show is called Dark Side of the Ring, and they've only got the the they end up with forty four minutes of content. You know what? What can you truly do? They've got to have yeah the the majority of it's got to be based on the dark side for it to justify its name, if you like. And, and what does that leave? That leaves you with 13 or 14 minutes to to sort of balance things out. And I just didn't feel like that were enough to add the prop, proper context. And I think what people don't understand is that in them days, like my father were a minor and um, he were born only a couple of months apart from Tom. So, and I've all of have heard all my life is the stories of how hard it was, the upbringing, the never, you know, their idea of an oldie were Blackpool for a few days and stuff like that, you know. So, so Tom and then Davey a couple of years later going off to Canada uh, to live and work as teenagers. I don't think it's ever really been thought of from that perspective of how how sort of frightening and harrowing that might have been for them at that time. And absolutely, uh, like they were, no, so, oh, you're just young men, boys. So um and yeah, they made mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes in their life. So I want to sort of put it off from that point of view. So i would got this idea in mind of where I want to tell the story and what angle I want to tell the story from. Um, but as I was doing more and more and more research, it just got sort of bigger and better. And I want right, I want, to, I want to focus on this bit. I want to focus on this bit. A lot of the Japanese stuff, I really want to focus on. Um, so what I thought from what I've just said there about how as young lads, and certainly Tom being the first one, to make that decision to go over to Canada. I really wanted that to be like sort of a, a, the first sort of arc in the story of um, sort of the sliding doors moment when he met Bruce Hart, as it were. Bruce Hart wore over uh, in 1977, just doing a sort of working tour, Stampede Wrestling while struggling and about to close down and he was going to go and find another career, but he just started to see a bit of world and use his, his profession as a wrestler to sort of say a bit of will so he came over to the uk and did a, a tour for max crabtree and Giant promotions and um yeah he he saw dynamite wrestle and at that time in stampede and most of us territories it was the land of the giants and only your sort of big heavyweights could headline but he saw mm. he saw tom wrestle as a 170 pound um lightweight teenager uh, against Mark Rocco, absolutely tear the house down, and thought, "Wow, this is maybe what we need to to make us a little bit unique, a little bit different uh, from the the other territories." And so, uh, yeah, he went home and sold this idea to his dad, Joe. Joe worked keen; he didn't believe that a young kid, a young skinny kid, could save the territory. So it sort of got put on back burner. But it ended up happening. They ended up um, they had nothing left to lose, and they ended up taking him over. So I wanted to speak to Bruce about that. So uh, I reached out through sort of just social media, really, met a couple of contacts and uh, ended up getting in touch with Bruce and arranged a call. We had a wonderful three or four hour conversation. It were absolutely brilliant. um, Hearing his perspective on everything, you know, not just Dynamite and David, but the wrestling industry as a whole. I really, really enjoyed speaking to him. And I think I must have made a, a reasonable impression in terms of what my intentions were, what my project was going to be, my passion and my energy, and my knowledge, and everything must have come across quite well. Uh, because a few days later, Ross Hart got in touch with me and said, Look, I know I've, I've heard about your book and about yourself. Um, I'd, I'd like to contribute myself. And I were over at the moon that because I, I'd already knew from all my research that Ross was um, really kind of a, a historian on behalf of you know uh, stampede wrestling on behalf of the art family on behalf of wrestling as a whole from that era so i really really keen to speak to ross there were some parts of the story that he was so uh integral in as well it, you know Davey had a they were in, involved in a really bad uh, van crash on the way to a stampede show where ross were driving that day uh, yeah there were a few parts that it were really integral to so. This A three hour conversation with Ross, we didn't even feel like we touched sides. So we agreed to stay in regular contact by email. So we found ourselves, you know, exchanging long emails. I could I felt like I could ask him anything. I did, I just asked him anything about the subject and he'd give me long detailed answers. He really sort of got a passion for it and um, became involved in more of a, he got more of an involvement than I ever thought he would, but it just happened organically to a point where um yeah, it, it was it, it really heavily involved. And I felt like i have got somebody to turn to all the time, but I'd, I'd already found myself some British wrestling historians, uh, Tony Earnshaw and Darren Ward and Bradley Craig, who I could turn to for different things. And um, Then I, I was speaking to Chick Cullen, Frank Cullen, who um, still lives out in Canada. He's a Scottish wrestler who knew Dynamite and David well um exchanging messages with him so I, I just built up this little network where any 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 points of research I felt like I've got somebody to turn to I've sub- sub- subsequently uh, spoken to um I mean I, sorry the key part missing from that is Bromwin. I know you spoke to Bromwin yourself Georgia. yeah uh, because it was going so well, Bronwyn, again, I'd, I'd sent Bronwyn some messages, but I think she must have maybe heard it all before and didn't really know what angle I would gonna kind of come from, but...
0: Yeah, uh, I can understand her being a bit Yeah, of I absolutely understand,
1: I absolutely understand yeah. all the family yeah. members being, being cautious, definitely cautious, mm-hmm. you know what. Um, but I think Ross passed on the message to her and some other family members that, um, again, a bit like Bruce had passed on to him, that it I was coming at it from a, the right perspective and... Uh, the right context and so Bromwyn then reached out to me again and said look yeah yeah I'll, I'll be involved so but me and Bromwyn have uh we've ended up with a really close friendship we uh, exchange messages regular and she has just been such a crucial source of information even things that she doesn't know I can go and ask her she'll go and ask him on Michelle Michelle we we'd sort of I've spoke to Michelle as well but Michelle will pass on messages through Bromway and Bromway will go out and find out information on my behalf that I might not have access to. And she's given me loads of ex- exclusive photos for the book. Uh, so That's her, awesome, and Ross, man. her and Ross being sort of so passionate about the project and having such an every, hmm. every involvement uh, as I was working towards an ending, I thought, well, there's only, even as, sort of, as much as I tried, I, I wanted to write this perfect ending. I realized that I probably, I couldn't write the ending as well as I know Bronwyn could tell it, so I asked Bronwyn if she would actually write um, the final piece, which is done. She's written what I've what I've called the afterword, and um, oh so wow, that's, that's by herself. And uh, Ross, I wanted his name up front cover as well, so I asked him to write the forward, which is done. He's wrote this sort of long, brilliant forward, uh, saying that it's the, in his opinion, it's sort of the most balanced and best and most detailed version of the bulldog story that's ever been told. And um, so I, one of the reasons I did that as well as I know that they'd write these brilliant pieces for me that had fit perfect as bookends at the beginning and the end. Um, I wanted their names up front as well, you know, so it now, you know, I'm I, obviously my name's emblazoned on it as the author, but it says forward by Ross Art, afterward by Bromwyn Billiton. And I feel that gives it, um, it, it gives them the true level of involvement that the that, that they deserve. And then you yeah, have spoken to Diana, um, Gary Port, Scott McGee, who are also on Dark Side of the Ring. He's told me a couple of brilliant anecdotes mm. that were on Dark Side of the Ring, which uh, is, is really great. Keith uh, has given me a, a true exclusive that's one of my favourite parts of the book uh, about when Tom and Ali Race became friends. They were there at the time. It's a brilliant story um, that... Sort of changes Tom's perspective at that time, I think, and so that's an important uh, important part mm-hmm. as well as being so um, so such an entertaining little story. Uh, and yeah, Brett, I, I got in touch with Brett through Bronwyn uh, indirectly. Uh, she uh, I,
0: I, did, did a part I, of you, by the way, like mark out a little bit, like.
1: Well, I did <laughs> because I, I, never, I still spoke to him directly. What I did was um, he asked he asked me through Bronwyn to write him. A letter um detailing what quotes of his I want to use because I said look, you know, as much as I'd love to speak to him, he's he's talked about it quite a lot in the past and obviously releasing his 600 word book, talks about everything so often. I don't know why Alexa's just started talking. (laughs) (laughs) Shout (laughs) out to Alexa. (laughs) Alexa's just started talking. Uh, I'll just keep this here, it's fine. Yeah, um, I felt like I'd got all the quotes that I needed as much as I'd like to have liked as exclu- hear him say them to me as exclusives for the book. I yeah. did feel like I'd kind of got everything that I needed off him through all his podcast appearances and his book and uh, things that he's done for Dave Meltzer's newsletter. Um, so, but what I wanted from him was sort of a sign-off that I could use all these quotes because there's only so many that you can use without formal permission. And I'd far bust that in terms of Brett. So um, I sent all the direct quotes and uh, included sort of a a one-pager about myself, about the book, what I wanted it to do, what I wanted it to achieve, what its objectives were. and um, Yeah, he he then asked me if I could send him the same thing back again, but with a a definite line for him to sign and date on. And then he sent it back to me, signed uh, and dated, Sort of wished me a good luck through Bronwyn with it all. It sounded like a good, a good project. So yeah, I That's did. That's
0: so cool, man. By the I did, way, I
1: did mark out a little bit. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> I put my I put my Hitman shirt on and uh, had a little moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so yeah, it kind of awesome. From where from where it originally started, I felt like it had really grown legs and ended up being bigger and better than what I ever dreamt it would be in terms of the people that I got involved and people that I spoke to. The things that I found out, you know, I knew that there were a book in there just based on the things that I already knew, but I found out so much more and so much more Mm. vital stuff, so much more very entertaining stuff, so much more positive stuff that doesn't get talked about as often. Um, And yeah, it's ended up being a, a, a full body of work that I'm really proud of.
0: Just hearing this journey, man, has got me excited. And made me look forward to one. I'm excited to read the book, basically. Just hearing is involved, hearing your passion, the excitement, like how much detail and how much, you know, how you've been exchanging the emails and the contacts that you've kind of gained through this journey. It's, it sounds like it's going to be a great book. I mean, I have to give a shout out also to Bronwyn, who I've had on the show before. And she is a fantastic person. I really enjoy speaking to her. Uh, it was great to hear about you know her dad's career, and just to hear about her as a person, and to uh, hear that she's assisted you so much um, in this book. You know, just makes me happy. Um, but that that's that's fucking awesome. So, what's the actual release date for the book? Uh,
1: the release date is fourth of April uh, here in the UK, and then it's a couple of months later for the US. But I've set up a I've set up a website, I've set up an eBay page, and I've set up a Twitter account. Um, all for the book so anybody from anywhere in the world can get in touch with me directly or order on the website or through ebay Mm -hmm. and i will make sure that they get a book uh, wherever they are in the world in 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 by the end of april so uh, regardless of what the sort of amazon or official release date might be in that part of the world um if they order from me direct i will personally make sure that they get that um delivered to them by the end of april so uh, I just wanted, I wanted that really, I didn't want there to be this sort of discrepancy, I know that I've i have had so much feedback from the US and Canada, as you can understand, uh, I didn't want them to sort of have to wait longer than everybody else, so I'd, I've sort of set all these extra um, mechanisms up for them to be able to order it, order it. Yeah,
0: because I did see Bonwin uh, put that on a Twitter, saying, you know, if you are outside the UK, um, just sort of get in contact with me. And then yeah, I get
1: yeah, yeah. again that would just because she's been so uh, amazing throughout it all and she's got this sort of um wonderful energy about her and mm. i really wanted her involved as well and um so i offered her the chance to almost be a little sort of have a little sales business if you like out in calgary i know there would be so much business out there for it in calgary that um i wanted her to be able to have a uh, be able to offer it out there i know that a lot of people have turned to her asking where they could get it from. So yeah. I wanted to have them sort of readily available on And so uh, she's going to get a, a delivery of uh, dozens and dozens of books direct from the publisher that she can then uh, arrange sale of around Calgary and Canada.
0: No, nah, awesome, man. I, 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 it's quite funny you mentioned about when um, sort of being a bit sceptical at first. She was kind of like that with me with the podcast because she probably gets asked all the time. And it just happened to be after the um, – Dark side of the ring. But because I'd actually told her that I'd actually spoke to Georgia Smith before and then she was like, Oh right, no, that's that's fine then, that's fine. And then, you know, talking about the podcast, ended up being a really good episode. So I thought I'd just share that sort of insight yes, as well. She's
1: great. Um <laughs> she's really she's so she's so chatty and she's got this sort of bubbly energy about her. She's mm. she's med fan and I'd hope that she does a little bit of um India wrestling as sort of a manager and she's absolutely made for that kind of that kind of thing i think she's got this presence about her and and an energy that uh yeah she's become quite popular i think on the wrestling podcast circuit because and you can see why she's she's so sort of giving with the time and giving with the knowledge and, Mm. uh, and she's
0: pretty open as well like she knows what's said about her dad and stuff but she also likes to hear the positive like from mick foley you know when, when you ask him about Dynamite Kid, he will literally say, despite <laughs> that match, I think it's it's on YouTube or Network, where yeah. Mick Foley <laughs> has uh I think it's first or second match in WWF in 86, 87, and he just gets knocked the fuck out basically by dynamite. But he take he takes it with such honor, so like oh, yeah, I mess with dynamite. It didn't end well, but yeah, that's great. And your dad's it, awesome. Like
1: yeah, i spoke to Mick as well via messaging as well. Uh, he's give me a couple of little pointers in terms of... Uh,
0: oh, really? Experience. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, he, again, he's sort of great with his time and that, and he, as I say, dynamite, he got he turned into good friends with Davy in the mid to late 90s. Uh, yeah. He had so much sort of love and respect for Davy from that era, uh, and as a worker, and he, he absolutely adores Tom, as I said, Tom's on his Mount Rushmore, and then after that sort of infamous event when he, Tom felt that Mick was um, a little bit cocky for some for in his second uh, wrestling match when he suggested a couple of spots that they might do in what, <laughs> were, what were effectively a jobber match. Yeah. Um, Tom, yeah, didn't take any prisoners. Put him in his
0: place, place basically.
1: Rock okay. his jaw with a, <laughs> a clothesline. That was on. it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, despite that, Mick almost wears that as a bit of a badge of honour. Um, yeah. Knows that it learned him a lot about his attitude towards um, other veterans at the time, uh, so almost thanks him for it in a way. And then years later, when Mick's career was taking off and Dynamite was um, on the way down, as it, it weren't. It's not like he had this chip on his shoulder like you might expect Tom at all. He, he was very humble, very respectful and give Mick some great pointers. They had some good matches. Good, they were involved in good tag matches against each other in Japan uh, in the early 90s. And um, it, they became they became sort of friends after yeah. all that, which is something that not a lot of people are aware of. And uh, Mick has got this utmost respect for him to the point where when Tom had really, on hard times, Mick was the one who wore... Um, trying to rally the troops into having sort of a charity event on his behalf and things like that, which never really happened. But uh, yeah, Mick being Mick were, were wanting to do all that. So yeah, I got in touch with him because there were a couple of stories that I'd heard of that I didn't know enough detail or, uh, on. And one of them being that when Davy had really it's on our times and we were in the hospital with a bad staph infection, um, Mick went to see him and... Um, that were effectively the day when re resigned for the WWF in 1999, uh, and it was Mick and Owen that sort of perked him up from this slump that he were in, both physically and mentally, and um, got him managed to get him resigned with Vince, which was unthinkable after what had happened in Montreal like some yeah. eighteen months earlier. Um, so I wanted to know a bit more about that, and he pointed in the right direction, I do not know, I've read most of what Mick's done, but the one that I'd sort of missed out on, or one of the couple of books of his that I'd missed out on were uh, The Hardcore Diaries, and he said, a of uh, feel free to use as much of my work as you want, but just so you know, the, the story that you're asking me about is heavily featured in Hardcore Diaries, so downloaded that book, and sure enough... <laughs> I quickly had some brilliant quotes to, to use. Uh, so, yeah, Mick, Mick was great as well.
0: That's awesome, man. Foley is God. Like, Foley's probably top 10 for me of all time, along with most of the Heart Foundation. Um, but those, this has been a, a good episode. I think you can tell that I'm massive, not just Dynamite, not just Bulldog, but the Heart family in general. Like, I love family. Uh, fun fact I have an Owen Heart tattoo. Really? Yep. Uh, not, not like a portrait of him, but just his boot. There I where? Uh, it's on my arm. So it's the it's basically his boot. Uh, not the King of Hearts logo, but a rocket. So WrestleMania 10 because Brett versus Owen probably my favourite match full-time.
1: Yeah, understandably. And here's a fun fact for you then, a little exclusive. That match, uh, David Boy was watching that match uh, in his mum and dad's home in Goldbourne. Um it was uh, touring the UK at the time after it had been fired by not only WF in 90, at the end of ninety two, but also WCW at the end of ninety three. That match happened in at WrestleMania ten in nineteen ninety four, and that was the day it turned to Diana and said, "I need to get back. I, I can't. I can't watch them tear the house down like that while I'm um, in uh, wrestling round sort of bingo halls in the UK." Uh, <laughs> I, i'm i'm going back and so then by uh SummerSlam made his return
0: i love that man i didn't i did not know that at all didn't mm-hmm. have a clue it's really annoying right because i we've been like having a really good chat for about an hour and a part of me just still wants to ask more questions about the book but at the same time i think i'm just gonna have to have patience like for <laughs> like a kid around christmas at the moment because i'm fascinated by the Hart family i've but like, i think i've re- had a conversation earlier about Brett Hart's book being the best wrestler book of all time. I mean, if you, if you agree with that, that's great. If you're listening to this, if not put in the comments below, what is your favorite book or mention some of your other favorite books? Cause I think Brett's mostly gets featured as at least top three. Yeah. I think,
1: Bre- I time. think Brett and Mix I mean, it's, true, it, it's difficult to argue with either of them. I think Brett Bret and Mix are my favorites. So, uh, and what, one of the things that I love about mix also is that it is actually a WWF production. He, I don't know if you've heard him talk about it, but um, he submitted it to the publisher and they basically wanted to tear it in half. They wanted to get rid of half of it, um, mostly just because they felt it were too long to be a wrestling book. As we've discussed, most of them are two or 300 pages. Yeah. It is, it's epic, a bit like Brett's. Is they wanted to get rid of most of it, but I dare say, and I'm only speculating here, but I dare say, given the fact it was going through the WWF production machine, I dare say a lot of the stuff that they'd got rid of would have been the more controversial stuff and that they maybe put a bit of a polish on it. And he said, no, he said, no, no, that's, it. he'd written he'd it while they were on the road. Um, and he said, no, no, that's it. He said, I'll let you sort of edit it, but I'm not letting you uh, rip it limb from limb. Um, and so that's why it's it stayed as intact and as long and, and detailed because it's as so
0: like the truth is you know. just there I, there are a few books like The Hardy Boys and Gold Goldust where you can just tell they have just stripped it so much and you know it filtered yeah,
1: it Stone Cold as well you know oh, i was really looking forward to that and it, I do think it's it, it's still good it's still interesting mm. uh, to read but it, it just leaves you with almost leaves you with as many questions as it does answers by the Absolutely. Bits.
0: A there's a few books know. i think underrated ones like hardcore holly's book i thought that was, i was surprised how good it was because was obviously a non-we book but i was like obviously he hates jeff Jarrett. it's really funny but i was just like oh i actually really like hardcore holly
1: <laughs> well i don't know if you've listened to any of it but um conrad thompson generally puts quotes from Bob Ollie's book to, to Jeff Jarrett on the podcast because I haven't he, listened he, to that one yet obviously you don't come out come out of it looking very well uh, but yeah again I, th- I don't think the better ones in general are the ones that aren't WWF affiliated because um, they've just sort of the ones that are have got a little bit of an agenda if you like they're not they're not completely free to write what they want mm. I don't think
0: um, I remember Batista uh, in his book he had to fight to basically feature and include a Benoit story. but like he had to fight for that. I mean, I could, that's one time I do understand why they didn't want to have him in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, we're, on, I know we're going on a bit of the segue, but what baffles me is um, on network, and I was like, the, the the general assumption or general knowledge is that they've sort of wiped Benoit out of everything. Um, but they haven't, actually, haven't every match of his is still on there on the network. All they hmm. do is...
0: You just can't search him. His name is like yeah, no it, results.
1: It just, says, it just says, it'll just say like the British Bulldog versus uh, our wrestler or something like that. Yeah. But then when you actually put it on, it you know, the, the commentators are calling him by his name. So uh, I, I find it, I find it very sort of odd how they've managed to claim to the world that wiped him out of everything. But Ian, it's still there. And I, in terms of pure wrestling, I, I, I don't think he should still be there, but um, it, it just feels a little bit Mm. Uh, like they're trying to get the best of both worlds, if you like, they're, they want they want to claim that they've...
0: Uh, there was so amazing, much that he, he did, like it, it's a very touchy subject, like not everyone likes to hear it, I'm with you, I can watch a Benoit match, and I'll just watch it for the match, but as a person, you know, I absolutely despise what he did. I think speaking for human being, and he shouldn't have been a hall of fame because there are people still out there who say he should be in the hall of fame. But I think, well, that I think just...
1: that's just—I I just think that's a ridiculous comment. Um, oh, it's on Twitter. You still see it, mate? Oh yeah. Oh, oh no, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't mean yours. I mean, I mean people who say that. Is the <laughs> oh yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I just think—can you imagine the uh, the reaction or how much that would overshadow? Anything else that were going on at that time? You know what I mean? It.
0: Well, I do feel bad, though, for Nancy Benoit, or Nancy, Nancy Sullivan, I'll call her, the woman. Um It's the fact that her career, in a way, has been washed away and erased. And yeah, she's been you're forgotten about. Right. And she, I
1: feel, yeah. you know... You're absolutely right. She was so pioneering for for women's wrestling in that... Mm-hmm. Uh, in, that in the lineup, 90s, definitely, yeah. Um, that You feel like if she wasn't so ingrained with with what happened that she would probably be in the hall of fame herself or, uh, or it's a real something. shame real shame uh, it is the obviously all thing about it's a shame it's such a yeah twist.
0: but i mean How like her, about- her career her achievements all done because of what he did but i feel like have you have you ever heard her sister i can't remember her name talk about her like nancy and the career and what happened and like she's really I'm- interesting to listen to
1: is it the same sister that wore well, Everly featured on the dark side episode? Yes. I
0: can, yeah, I cannot uh, remember yeah, her name, yeah, I forgot now.
1: She is, yeah, I can't think of the name as a mentioned now, but um yeah, she, she is. She obviously you can tell that she's still obviously torn apart by it all and she comes yeah. across really well and really well. want well. um, to and
0: talk with Jericho, not just like such a brave woman.
1: Yeah, but it needs that, as we've as we've just said, like Nancy Nancy's side of it sort of gets washed over a little bit because yeah. Because of everything that's happened, so it does need some people like Chris Jericho to um, sort of feature that quite heavily. Um, but I mean, he, he
0: does a really good job, Jericho, when it comes to that sort of stuff. Really good job. He,
1: he's like, he's got such a big reach and such a big following that mm. um, I think he's not he's not afraid of the controversy because I think uh. AEW, as opposed to the WWF, give them that freedom to go and do their own thing, and cover. Mm cover the more controversial stuff, be, be themselves and do what they want, uh, even as far as going and wrestling for the promotions, you know what I mean? I think that's mm. what people are really warming to him for. They don't feel like they're just sort of ring-fencing the talent and uh, sort of oppressing them, if you like. Uh, and he does a brilliant job uh, with all that and uses his, his influence and his reach in the right way, I think. Yeah,
0: you're not, you're not wrong. I, mean, I just wish he would stop mentioning Fuzzy in his books because his books are brilliant. Then you get like, ah, oh, Fuzzy talk. Skip, skip, skip. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, just so squeeze it in.
1: <laughs> you know, as, as much he loves, as much he loves wrestling and as much of a fantastic wrestler as he is, he does still only want to be a rock star.
0: <laughs> I know. He's on tour in UK at the moment. I was just like, my mate, I like, do you want to go? Nah, you're right. <laughs> if it was wrestling or something, like AW, yeah. Yeah, yeah, fuck it, let's do it. Should we go see Fuzzy? Nah, I'm busy. Doing what?
1: He does, he does the cruises, doesn't he? The, the, the Fuzzy cruisers oh, Mate,
0: I couldn't do that. I just could not do it. Like I love I'm a wrestling fan, you're a wrestling fan. But for three days, listen to Fuzzy. I can't do it being surrounded by like AEW fans. Not for me.
1: <laughs> you can tell that that's that's yeah, that's what he wants to be deep down. But yeah, <laughs> uh, you can't you can't blame he's him. He's never gonna
0: give up with the rock stars.
1: Part time wrestler, part time rock star. Fair play to him.
0: Oh. Fair, oh, absolutely, man. Jericho's one of my favourites of all time <laughs> as a wrestler. Mate, top
1: top five, maybe top ten? Like, yeah, in terms, behind in terms of longevity and achievements, yeah, undoubtedly, I think you'd have to say top ten. Yeah, um, but
0: in terms of his, like, rock career, like, we'll just end, we'll just end that conversation.
1: Yeah, um, but, yeah, going back to people who aren't in Hall of Fame, obviously, it's an issue in the book with Dynamite not being in there and and also yeah, stuff with you fair. with your tattoo. Um uh, uh, I really don't like the fact that Owen are in, in there. I mean, it can't, I think it kind of makes a mockery of the Hall of Fame, I think, um, and I know the issue was why, and I know that Martha's got a sort of moral stance in terms of yeah. uh, why why he shouldn't be in there and why they shouldn't be able to almost profit. By See, the- my,
0: my tune's changed on that. I used to be like my, the biggest advocate of how Owen being in the Hall of Fame. Oh, why is he not in the video games or has his own merch and, you know, getting... His career celebrated by wrestling fans who still miss him, and then I did like my research and listened to more of what had Martha had to say. Read up on her and what actually happened. And then Darkside came out. Then I was just like, "Do you know what? I stand by that woman. I stand by her and the family. Why she doesn't want him anywhere near it. And she says like she forgives him. That I think that's all they need to know, and I respect that because when you know when you properly, we won't have a full blown conversation about it because it's actually quite it's really really sad." Um, as well, yeah. if anyone's not it does get proper deep. I mean if anyone wants to go out there, it's out there, so we have to go literally Google Mother Heart, Hall of Fame, Owen Hart, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I like what AEW's um got in plan with Owen Hart, the Owen Heart tournament. You know, we're gonna get action figures. I don't care about action figures, but for Owen Heart, I will happily buy one.
1: <laughs>
0: happily and display that bad boy.
1: Yeah, I think I do think that as a as an alternative, I just think that he he deserves to be, and I don't want to use the word "remember" because everybody does remember it. Everybody remembers him so fondly, but uh it just it deserves to be current, I think, and uh in, in the way that most mm. most of them have something be it an, an All of Fame ceremony or. Like, they I don't something. want
0: just the full like, like the but, night, it's, night, night, it's night. Probably,
1: probably going to get that through through AEW, and um yeah, I, I just hope they involve the right people. Mm. I hope and they'll they'll be able yeah, to use like footage
0: like, of him and. Uh, Japan and stuff and news pictures obviously there won't be SU's WB footage, but they can work around it and they can celebrate his life, which it's been too damn long, too damn long.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. You know, some nights, some brilliantly produced and professional montages and stuff like that. The, the mm. things that you get when, when somebody's, for example, being inducted into the Hall of Fame, we want we need something new like that, I think, for Owen. So, hopefully, we're going to get it.
0: Oh man, I can't wait. So I'm just going to ask a few more questions and then I'll let you enjoy your evening. Uh, I'd have to say after in the morning because we're in the same time zone. Happy days makes things a bit easier. Um, so we've, we've we've discussed in detail about the book, but I just want to ask a few more questions about you being an author as well. I uh, just some, want to get some insight because I think the listeners will want to hear that. How would you overcome writer's block?
1: Oh, it's, it's something that I haven't come across it yet, but I've only not come across it. I think because I've immersed myself in projects that I'm so passionate about, and I think mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. Um, I think if somebody is a professional writer, especially of something like novels, maybe I can absolutely see why there's so much pressure on having your next idea or putting your next thing, putting next pen to paper when you, you know, your livelihood depends on it. Whereas what I've done is immerse myself as sort of a part-time, almost an hobby that's turning into a career now, Uh, immerse myself in projects that I'm so passionate about, all I can think about uh, while I'm doing pretty much anything else is, right, the next thing that I'm going to move on to is this chapter, this section, the next thing I'm going to research is uh, about this bit, I can't wait to get on to research about that bit, Mm -hmm. But it's, I have found it so far. I'll be brutally honest. I have found it impossible. So I've written a blog about the subjects that I've that have fallen into. But I think that's just because um, it's not. Uh, it, there's no pressure on me to um, to produce something out of nothing. Uh, everything is everything is already out there somewhere. And I know it is. All I need to do is find find it. The be it on the internet, be it in other people's books, be it by finding somebody who does know about it because they're there. Uh, so, yeah, I've always found myself with somebody to turn to or a book to turn to or the internet to turn to, uh, which has given me my sort of next uh, my next chapter, my next little story, my next piece that I want to write about.
0: Awesome, my man. Well, we asked, I actually asked about your favourite British Bulldog match, but I actually forgot to ask your favourite Dynamite Kid match.
1: Favourite Dynamite Kid match? Um, yeah, well, I think the obvious answers are obviously is one ones with Tiger Mask, mm-hmm. um, which are just so groundbreaking, so brilliant. Um, but my favourite one is actually... Uh, is one of his first matches against a Japanese headliner, but it took place in Calgary, it took place in Stampede. Uh, it's against Tatsumi Fujinami. Uh for the, as it were at the time, of the WWF uh, junior heavyweight title. Uh, they, they've they gone on a tour, he's having a bit of work issue visas. We actually get into Japan at that time and he's got multiple promotions, even smaller promotions, sort of fighting for him. Uh, so he's unclear about who he's going to go to. So uh, there's a bit of complications with all that, but then New Japan, do a tour of US and Canada, the US and Canada, Canadian territories. So when they come through uh, Stampede, they want Fujinami to put his WF junior heavyweight title on the line against Dynamite. Um, And they absolutely tear the house down. Uh, It's absolutely phenomenal. And that is the match that made the Japanese audience and the Japanese bookers, particularly the New Japan bookers, say so, right, get him on the next plane over here and then ultimately he turns into the man that they uh, put in with Tiger Mask to get time, to get Tiger Mask over to the absolute maximum that he can and then when Tiger Mask goes into semi-retirement and vacates the belt, um, Dynamite is the man and that would lead to, if it weren't such a short match when he actually wins the WWF Junior Everweight title finally, five years after first challenging for it uh, he does it in a tournament where he beats Davey Boy in the semi-final uh, and injures his back so badly. And that is where his real, real back problem started when he injured his back that night when he finally... But he, he wrestles through the pain barrier. No man alive should have been able to even walk, let alone carry on wrestling another match when he beat the Cobra in the final. Um and it's like a brilliant five-year story from the first time he challenged for that title to actually winning it five years later and going through all that agony. Um, I detail it quite heavily in the book, yeah. But it's just, I think that first match blows everybody away so much to culminate five years later on this sort of famous night in Tokyo. Yeah, it's brilliant.
0: Ah, oh, wicked, man. I think mine's probably the match against Tiger Mask or there's a match you had with Macho Man. is in the King of the Ring tournament.
1: yeah, yeah. I- no, it's in uh, yeah, it's on the wrestling classic in um, oh, yeah, like it like 86. Yeah, they, they have they just have like a one off tournament as a paper. Yeah, year. it's not a long match,
0: but it's no, so it's on good because
1: they have got to cram all these matches in obviously in the tournament mm. format, they've got to cram all these matches in uh, into the one night, so they are they're all pretty short matches. Uh, but it's as if they've made this decision, him and Randy at the time being two of the top workers of the world. Right. We've only been given five minutes, but let's make it absolutely the best five minutes you can imagine. And yeah, it it does. It steals the show.
0: Ah, superb, man. That's awesome. Last question. And I'll let you go, Stephen. What can the readers expect from reading this upcoming book? So We've talked about the content. We've talked about who you've reached out to. We've talked about what's involved, And what Spy did write it, but as a reader, what can they expect? Uh,
1: I think uh, real exclusives that nobody knows or has heard or seen before uh, Mm -hmm. is one of the things that I'm most proud of. Uh, I've had a couple of people, Twitter being Twitter, um, challenge me and say, "Well, you know, it's all been done before. What what are you bringing to the table?" Really? um, Oh yeah, yeah. As you can imagine, (laughs) Uh, absolutely. No doubt in my mind, I, there is going to be an awful lot in this book that nobody's ever read before. And I do, I am quite proud of my style. I do it in quite a dramatic and descriptive way where I sort of create themes. So, how many books have you
0: published, by the way? Is it three?
1: This is my third, yeah.
0: Third one. So, okay.
1: so yeah, um, it's not just going to be a, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. You'll find. Um, an awful lot of detail, uh, an awful lot of drama and matches gone into real real detail that you probably didn't even know existed, matches that they had against people that you didn't know they'd ever been in the ring with, uh, gone into, into real detail. Uh, I honestly believe that not one person will be disappointed when they finish this book.
0: I can't wait, mate. I honestly can't. And I'm not just saying that because I'm speaking to you right now and I've had Bronwyn as a guest before and George Smith and the fact that I absolutely adore that entire family. But I can just tell it's going to be a good book. Where can the listeners find you on social media, Stephen?
1: Uh, On social media, I am Stephen underscore bell 1985. Uh, on Twitter, Um, but I've also got a dedicated Twitter page for the book, which is at BulldogsBook123. Uh, I've got a website set up, which uh, you can get all my books so far and place a pre-order for Dynamite and David. That's StephenBellWrites.com. And, yeah, there's even, for those who don't like social media or anything like that, there's even an eBay page set up, so you can place your pre-orders there too, which, you know, a quick search and you'll find it pretty quickly, I'd have thought
0: awesome so thank you for coming on like it's been a really good conversation I thought I like could have had a bit longer but I didn't want to Apart, part of me was just going to literally try and pick your brain about the book because I just want to know more now
1: <laughs>
0: and I don't think that's fair for the consumers and myself I feel I'm just going to have to wait basically because uh, I like to feel like I know everything but uh, I, I'm yeah, sure.
1: no, I, I, love, I love talking about it George. it's been a brilliant conversation uh, over an hour, <laughs> just flown by so thanks yeah. for that
0: nah no problem at all for everyone that's listened to this episode there's going to be more episodes of what you call it podcast coming out soon but for now everyone have a brilliant week and also i hope arsenal get three points against man united take care (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's time for What Do You Call It Podcast!
1: The following podcast is brought to you by the Jonas Podcasting Network, found exclusively at WrestlingWithJonners.com.